We'd like to read from 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll begin reading at verse 12 and read through to the end of the chapter, verse 19. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God, <clears throat> according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, in our passage today, we are looking at the subject of suffering. And it's a subject, it's clearly a theme throughout the book of 1 Peter. And we have already in some of the previous service sermons preached or talked about some of this. Uh, today, we'll uh, maybe drill in just a little bit more specifically on the subject of suffering. Um, yeah, in the passage here today, there are at least, depending how you count, six or seven references or words that either imply suffering or the actual word suffering itself. And up to this point, by the time we get to uh, verse 12 of chapter 4, there are uh, numerous references in the book of 1 Peter about suffering. And um, like I said, we've pointed some of those out uh, as we went maybe at least uh, 8 to 10 times prior to this, depending how you count. We do not want to miss at all, while we talk about our suffering First Peter talks about the suffering that the reader or the people of that time were facing, but I think even more specifically, I think it's important for us to notice that the suffering that is often mentioned in the book of First Peter is the suffering of Jesus. And I think it's just significant that Jesus played a role in this subject of suffering. <clears throat> Some time ago, I came across a joke about a man who lost his beloved dog, his pet dog. And he was hoping that he could find and locate his lost dog, and so he put an ad in the newspaper. And you can imagine the response that he got when they saw, opened the newspaper and saw this little ad. And the ad read as follows, lost dog with three legs, blind in the left eye, missing right ear, 
tail broken, recently wounded, answers to the name Lucky. And sometimes that caught my attention because sometimes I think we find ourselves in situations where we in our lives are going through things and we think, how could it possibly be worse? What, what further thing could happen? And I think it's a temptation that we have when we're struggling or as we're struggling with things suffering in our lives. <clears throat> we cry out and we struggle with, with suffering. We don't, it's not something that we set out as we um, think about life goals or whatever. We don't include things like suffering in our, our bucket list. <clears throat> it's something that we want to avoid. Often we try to avoid it at all costs. And suffering can sometimes cause us to question God's love. There are times where we find ourselves in experiences and things that where we tend to question whether um, it, the, the scriptures are what they claim to be, or that God loves us, or that we are loved by God. <clears throat> there is a, an author named Philip Yancey. I have not read many or much of his writings. I, it's, uh, like I said, something that I came across as I was preparing for this sermon. And he has a book entitled, Where is God When It Hurts? And there were some ex excerpts that uh, were especially outstanding to me as I perused the, um, yeah, some of his writings. And he begins in the first chapter of the book where he's saying that it is one of the primary things that people question about God. And if you have done any kind of evangelism or witnessing, it's probably something that you have encountered yourself, where one of the questions about the existence of God is why God allows evil. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Not only, to, it's not only bad people that experience bad things, but good people experience in, uh, bad things. And even further, innocent people experience bad things. Pain and suffering in the world. Why does God allow so much pain and suffering? And he followed up that book with another book called Why? The question that never goes away. And he extends on that subject and writes additional comments or additional subject matter on this thing. And Philip Yancey was uh, asked to come to um, the Sandy Hook shooting area in Newtown, Connecticut, back when that took place. And he writes about that experience where 26 people were killed, a school shooting. And he wanted to, uh, they asked him to come and speak to the survivors and the community about pain and suffering. And, of course, talk about God. And something dawned on him as he prepared for that. And as he was researching for this new book, he was preparing or researching by reading material or books from atheists, people who did not believe that God existed. And the thought dawned on him, and he says, and, and I quote, he says, this is a question 
that is much harder than where is God when it hurts? Where is God when it hurts? And that is, where is no God when it hurts? And he talks about that. He said, how does that work? And he explains it this way. He says, the atheist will tell people that the universe is random. Things just sort of happen and things just, life just takes its course. And there's just sort of this blind indifference rather than having meaning and purpose to events and things that happen in our lives. And he goes further. He says, I noticed that these atheists are never asked to speak at places like Sandy Hook Elementary School because whatever they would have to say would be the least bit comforting to the hearers. If life is just random and we need to get used to it and fall in line with the randomness that life is, that, there's no comfort in that. But when there are tragedies, Christians are asked to speak. And I think that's interesting. I think it's true. Christians will stand up and say, what happened was tragic. Should not have happened. Christians find themselves upset at the kind of evil that exists in the world. However, the Bible says there is a good God who will make all things work together for good to those who love God. And if you trust him, there's hope in that. And that is a message and a theme, I think, that is pervasive in 1 Peter. <clears throat> Not only the fact that people suffer, but that suffering is used by God and can be used by us to, um, for the purpose of betterment and, in, and improvement. <clears throat> so along with all that, uh, as we look here in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to 19, he talks, about the, uh, it talks more about the suffering of the followers of Christ, believers at that time. As far as I can tell, this is about 60, the mid-60s A.D., as Peter is writing this. And uh, he uh, refers various times in the book already. In chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about the, the trials and testing of their faith. In chapter 2, verse 12, he talks about the fact that they were being falsely accused as evildoers. Believers were... Um, actually being called uh, wicked or evildoers. In chapter 2, verses 18 and 20, he talks about their relationship with their employers or their masters and how their masters were treating them badly, maybe even partially for the fact that they were Christians. In chapter 3, verse 1, they, he talks about the hardship or the suffering that happens in, in a marriage, especially where a spouse is not a believer. Believers... In chapter 4, in chapter 3, verse 9, uh, there is abuse or um, mockery or evil that is directed toward a believer from people around him. In chapter 3, verse 9, former acquaintances in chapter 4, verse 4, look at a believer's life and they call them uh, strange, uh, like he says, where they, they um, yeah, again, mock and direct accusations toward a believer for the fact that he is a believer. 
In this passage now, he goes, um, extends on that, and he talks about in verse 13 how that when we suffer, we are partakers or we are participants with Christ in his suffering. They suffer as a Christian in verse 16. Additionally, in chapter 5, which is uh, in our, some of our next um, subjects here, We'll be looking at, at more of this and extending into Second Peter, he, he goes right on to that theme. Today, I'd like to talk about the do's and don'ts of suffering from this passage. I have two of each. I have two do's and two don'ts from this passage. We'd like to work through these uh, as our outline for the sermon, first of all, don't be surprised by suffering. Secondly, don't be scared by suffering. And then, do be selective in your suffering. And secondly, do be sensitive by suffering. Let's begin with the first. In verse 12, don't be surprised by suffering. First Peter chapter 4 Verse 12, beloved. And I think it is so neat how he starts with that word, beloved. He reminds them that they are loved. He reminds them not only that he loves them or that they are loved by each other, but I think more directly he's talking about the fact that they are, being, that they are loved by God. Beloved. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Twice now we have the word strange used in this verse. And it has the idea and carries the, the uh, it communicates that we shouldn't think of it as something strange or something odd or something unusual when suffering comes into our lives. I love the fact that Peter is writing this and uses this word. He is a pastor. He is a, he's got the heart to say, I love you. And what's more, God loves you. You're loved by God. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. I think Hebrews, for example, talks about suffering or chastisement. He, talks, he uses the word in that passage. And he says that it's a sign of connection and love. He says that, it, that suffering can be and is a sign of, of relationship. Peter, I think, uses that same idea when he talks or uses the word beloved. Don't think it bizarre or unusual when you suffer. It's actually not. Suffering is common to all. Suffering happens to everyone. <clears throat> However, when we suffer, I think... It's not one of the first emotions. When we suffer, I think we're, we tend to cry out. That's, that's often. We want relief for the suffering. And so we think of terms that this shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't be happening to me. I, I don't deserve this and that, those sorts of things. We think of it as not right or we think of it as unusual. And Peter, I think, is, is telling them in this passage that we should not think that way. We should not allow ourselves to continue to, on that path. Suffering is 
something that is usual and is common. It is a part of the human experience. <clears throat> and we know, we've already talked about it, that I think that suffering can sometimes be one of the main reasons that people reject God, the God of the Bible. How could a loving God, who is so powerful, allow evil to exist? George Barna, who is a popular and a common surveyor, has a survey where he asks people uh, the question, if they could ask God what one question, what question would that be? And the overwhelming question in that survey is, why does God allow evil and pain and suffering on the earth? And like I said before, it's, it's, that, that's, a, that's a realistic question. It's a question that I think we can ask and, and perhaps should wrestle with. It's not only the hardened criminals, you see, who have the broken limbs. It's not only murderers who are the ones who get cancer, but it's innocent people who suffer. Good people suffer, and that's a hard one to grapple with. But I'd like to just turn that around for just a, a brief moment here, because when you ask the question, why is there so much evil in the world, or you say, why is there, why is there so much evil in, or things, bad things happening to me, you're, you're asking that, or the, the basis for your question, or your, your wrestling with that, is because you're measuring your experiences with something that's better. And the question is, where does that thing, or that better pattern, or that model come from? As, what are you comparing it to? For example, if you're in a class of students, and one student gets a 90, and another one gets an 80, and another one maybe a 70, you're assuming the, that there's a standard of 100 somewhere, okay? And that's a standard by which that class is measured. And when you ask, the, when you wrestle and ask the question about evil that's happening in the world, you're comparing it to something that is better or 100%. So if there is no God, then where do we get the standard of goodness? From where do we get the standard of goodness by which we measure evil? <clears throat> it can be a very meaningless conversation if we're not careful. Unless we recognize that God is in control and His purposes are good, we can find ourselves at really odd places. <clears throat> Something else I want you to notice before we jump to the next um, thing here is in verse 12, the, word, the two words, uh, fiery trial. The word fiery trial. Now, history is um, interesting uh, to think about uh, in this context. In about 80-60s, uh, Nero was originally, uh, he was the emperor at this time, Caesar Nero, and he was an um, architect and enjoyed building and making things better and improvements, and he was originally sort of, uh, sort of okay with Christians, I believe, 
At the beginning of his uh, time in, in, um, as the Caesar, and about AD 64, around the, the, the well, we, we think that Peter wrote this about 64 AD or about in that range. And in 64 AD, in about the middle of the year, there was an incredible fire in Rome, and a very large section of the city of Rome burned to the ground. And people lost everything for about nine weeks, starting on, Ju- on June the 16th, July the 16th. For nine weeks following, Rome had a continual fire burning. The city was effectively burned to the ground, or at least a section of the city. And many people at that time and to this day believe that it was Nero that started the fire and his henchmen actually started the fire and kept it going. There were people who were fighting the fire would be confronted by soldiers and people from the government and not only were the fires uh, allowed to burn, but they were, new ones were started according to re- numerous reports and, and historians at that time. Well, you can imagine there was an incredible revolt by the residents of Rome toward Nero. This, it, he had crossed the line and, and for all the crazy things that he had done prior to this, this, this put them over the, the edge or put, put them over the line and they were united against Caesar. And so one of the things that Caesar did was he had a very good propaganda system and, and in, in order for him to wiggle out of the situation, he blamed the Christians for starting the fires. And just like propaganda, when you repeat something often enough, eventually you can maybe sort of um, get people to believe that it's true, and that's exactly what he did. And so he blamed the Christians. They, he didn't, they weren't always very well liked anyway, uh, just like we were reading about here in First Peter. They were scattered. Nero was looking for a scapegoat, and he said, let's blame the Christians. And so they did. And one of the forms of persecutions that Nero used uh, to kill Christians in Rome at that time was he would take them and, and um, smear them with pitch or dump pitch all over them and light it. Um, he would tie them up on poles or elevate them into places where they would be kind of like street lanterns. It's a horrible thought. And I don't know for sure, but there are some uh, Bible scholars and historians that would actually feel that that is part of what Peter is writing about when he talks about the fiery trial here in in verse uh, 12. The second thing that we can see here in the passage is that we should not be scared. Don't be scared. Here in verse 13, there's a couple of words that describe and talk about how we're to think about suffering. He uses the word rejoice in verse 13. I don't know how that hits your ears. And he goes on in verse 14 where he talks about being happy are ye when you're partakers. And he talks about the glory in verse 13. And also in verse uh, 14, he talks about the glory, the spirit of glory. Verse 16, he talks about glorifying God as a result of suffering. Again, I don't feel like I understand this very well. 
I've, for the most part, have lived a charmed life, I feel. I have not ever suffered in the way that these Christians did, or many Christians in the world are suffering. But the text here clearly calls us to rethink suffering, whatever suffering it is that we're feeling with, whether it's persecution for being a Christian like here, and I think the same thing applies for other forms of suffering that we deal with uh, in our lives. We really have no right to expect better treatment than Jesus received. We have no right to expect better treatment than Jesus received. Christians throughout the world in almost every place in the world, suffer much, much more persecution, much more resistance than we do in our society, in our place here in, in the world. And, and that should be a humbling thought. <clears throat> Three things that I think are important for us to believe as we think about evil. Just turning just a little bit Actually, let me just back up just a little bit. C.S. Lewis uh, tackles the question about why good people or why righteous people suffer. And I think it fits into what, he's, what Peter writes here. C.S. Lewis, when tackling this question about good people suffering, said, why not? Why should, why should not the righteous people suffer? He says, they're the only ones who can take it. Righteous people are actually the only ones that can process it the way God wants, it, wants them to process it. They will do it differently than somebody who has no hope or an unbeliever. So how should we think about evil? What are some things that we should think about and know about evil? I've kept this pretty simple, and for the sake of today, yeah, I'm going to move through it pretty quickly. I think, number one, I think we should recognize that evil exists. I think it just goes without saying, there is lots of evil in the world. And we should know that. We should know that, that it is true. There is a lot of evil in the world. Secondly, I think we need to understand and believe that God permits evil to exist. There is nothing that happens outside of the watch of God. Now we have this... Um, it, it's not a new doctrine... But it's sort of a fad that I think we see in our world today, in our society, and maybe even in our culture, it comes closer home than we believe, than we would think sometimes, and that is the doctrine of open theism. Some of you have maybe never heard of open theism, but open theism is also sometimes called process theology. And it basically says that God is not totally in control. God doesn't know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. He is not totally in control. And further, they would say that God is not in complete control of the future. And so that's how they deal with the pro problem of evil. They've got God running around saying, oops, or God not understanding the future, or God not being in control of the future. And for me, at least, I say, no, thank you. Evil exists. God permits evil to exist. Nothing ever happens outside of his watch. Even, even the, the things that Satan and unbelievers do, is not outside of the watch of God. God is sovereign. He is in control. 
And we know that he knows the future. He knows all the aspects of the future. He knows all the possibilities that exist within evil people and the, the options that they exist in, in whatever decision they're facing. He is not out of control of the future. Evil exists. God permits evil to exist. But I think I know something beyond that, and I've already referred to it. God uses evil for his purposes. God uses evil for his purposes. God's glory and our good are just sort of like an interwoven garment. They go together. God gets glory even from evil in the world, and he will be. We read in the book of Revelation and prophecy, God, when the end of the world comes together, when the end of the world is taking place, God is praised not only for what the good things that he's doing or the, the, the things of redemption, but he is also praised and exalted for judgment in, in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> Some purposes for suffering. There's several things that suffering can and does do for us if we allow it. And I, again, several things that I think are important for us to think. I think it's important for us to know and believe that suffering purifies us. I think it's, it's right for us to believe this. Suffering can and does bring purification into our, our lives. We've talked about it different times, especially back in, in chapter 1, when we talk about suffering, that it purifies us. In chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, he talks about the idea of a, a person who works with metals, and he purifies it with fire by putting heat to the metal. And heat to metal has a way of hardening it or purifying it. Suffering, you could say, purifies the metal. Suffering does something else. Suffering has a way of humbling us. When I go through suffering, for people like me who have a tendency to walk in pride, we are often brought to our senses, brought to humility by suffering. And we're brought to street level with a period of suffering. Did you know that the Apostle Paul, even though he was a very humble man, struggled with this same thing of pride, temptation toward pride, and he knew it. He admitted it. He talks about it in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about the fact that he had seen miracles of God. He had performed miracles as, a, as an apostle and a, and, a, and a man of God. He had, done, he had seen visions of God, and the tempt, temptation was for him to be exalted above measure, he says in that, in that text. And he says, so in order to confront that temptation or to give him victory or humility in that, in that experience, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And it says specifically that it was a message, a messenger of Satan to torment him or to buffet him. So suffering will purify us. And it has ability to humble us. And I think more than anything, suffering has a way of making us depend on God. Like nothing else, it keeps us dependent. I thought of it in our Sunday school lesson last week in Mark 6. The apostles, the disciples were going across the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee there, and they, were, they encountered a storm 
They encountered suffering. They encountered fear doing what Jesus had told them to do. It's not that they were outside of Jesus' will there. They were doing what Jesus told them to do. That was to row across to the other side. And as they were doing that, they encountered this storm, suffering. And Jesus walked across the water and came to where they were. And I think one of the purposes that Jesus arranged that entire situation was so that they could see his glory and they could learn to depend on Jesus. And it can be the same for us. In Paul, there in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter 12, when he prayed, it says he prayed three times. He asked God to take away the thorn in the flesh, and God's reply was, my grace is sufficient. It's enough. It's all you need. And think of it, when, when we're weak physically, physically speaking, when we're weak, especially maybe we're uh, yeah, recovering or as a, an older person, we're weak physically, and we, it helps to lean on something. It helps to have your hand on uh, a piece of furniture or to be uh, um, using a walker or when you're recovering from surgery to have crutches or something like that a cane, or another person. When you're, when you're weak physically, you lean, you look for things to lean on, and that's exactly how it is spiritually. We are called, suffering makes us depend on God. Now I want to quickly uh, talk about the two do's of suffering that I see here in this passage, and I don't feel like I'm exhausting this, but I've picked out two. In verse 15, there are two things that we should do in relation to suffering. We should be selective in suffering. Verse 15, he says, Don't suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a busybody, a meddler. Now let's just uh, talk about that right there. I think it's fine, it's interesting that Paul mentions these, these lists to these Christians. They were persecuted, and maybe feeling a bit cornered. And I, I think that one of the things that... that or I can imagine if, if there would be a persecution where you are literally hunted for being a Christian, that there would be temptations or thoughts about defending yourself. There would be temptations or thoughts. I think maybe there would be temptation to want to defend ourselves or to, to interfere with, with the edict uh, from the governor or who, wherever it's coming from to, to meddle in a situation like that or to protect oneself, maybe even to the point of taking the life of a person that's coming after you. And here Peter says, it's better to suffer as a Christian. Don't suffer for those reasons. Don't, don't suffer for being a murderer or a meddler or an evildoer. Suffer, if you're going to suffer, suffer for being a Christian. <clears throat> Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody, or a, a meddler. <clears throat> Let's continue with that thought in verse... 17, where he talks about a, uh, the correct mindset in relation to suffering, about being selective in what we suffer for. In verse 17, there is an interesting 
quote out of the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 11, there, the, the quote there in verse um, 18 is a quote from the book of Proverbs. Verse 17, he says, For the time will come when judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel? What shall be the end of those that obey not the gospel of God? And I, I'm not sure that I understand exactly what is uh, implied or said here or meant here. But there was a several things that came to my mind as I thought about this. And I think number one is I think it's important for us in our suffering to adopt a long-term mindset. It's easy for us when we're suffering to just think about the immediate. And pain has a way of doing that. Pain has a way of forcing us to look at what is. And, and to, uh, yeah, pain causes us to look at reality of a situation, um, the current. But Peter, I think, is in, in implying here that even though there is temporary and physical suffering going on right now, think about the end, is what he's saying. Eternal suffering is coming for judgment. Our judgment is coming for sinners. Suffering on earth, on the other hand, is temporary. And it has the ability, or it can, prepare us for the future, where there is no suffering, heaven. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus called the gate narrow and hard to find. The path that Christians are to walk on is narrow uh, one of the words that's used in the King James Version there is the word straight. And um, that can mean narrow, but I think it can also mean difficult. When we talk about somebody being in dire straits, we're talking about um, uh, difficulties. And when Matthew 7 talks about the word straight there, I think he's talking about a difficult path to walk. And uh, in Matthew 7, it makes that same point. The way is difficult... The way is narrow, but Jesus calls there in the Sermon on the Mount to think about the future, the long-term vision. Suffering in this world has a way for us to make us long for heaven. And it's a reminder that what we have here in the world, as, as good as the good things are here on earth, they're, they're really not that great compared to heaven. And they are nearly always temporary or short-term, short-lived. And suffering has a way to call us to looking at a, at a long-term vision, a long-term mindset when we think about the future. The closest thing, it's been said, the closest thing, this world is the closest thing to heaven that some people will ever see. And conversely, it's the closest thing that we'll ever see to hell if we're a believer. This world is temporary, it's passing, and it has the ability to change us into something better. And that's the last point. We should be sensitized by suffering. Do be sensitized by suffering. And we see that especially in verse 19. And he starts with the word, wherefore. Wherefore, he says, or it could also be said, therefore, because, because this world is temporary, because, or since we're looking, we're trying to adopt a long-term mindset, 
He says, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. And there's a lot that could be said. I think in this passage, this is easily my favorite verse. Or the thoughts that are in this verse are some of my favorite as I think of this entire sermon. But think of it in this way. Well, let me just call attention to this. It says suffering according to the will of God. And I think it's a, we should just stop right there. We have the same phrase in chapter 3, verse 17, where it talks about suffering according to the will of God. And I, just, just remember that this is in the book. This is in the Bible. This is what God says in his word through Peter, that suffering is and can be the will of God. We have lots of probably well-meaning Christians that says, say that when we are believers that we are, should always be healthy, we should always be prosperous, we should always be smiling, we should always go through life happy and feeling it, and yeah, but if that's, if that's your mindset, I think you should probably cross out those lines here in First Peter. Here he says, suffering according to the will of God. He doesn't stop with that, however, and he goes on and he says that we should, we should be committing our souls or committing ourselves to God in our suffering. And I have so much to learn as I think about this. This word commit is actually a monetary term. It's a banking term. Sort of like going to the, the bank with a lot of cash or a lot of checks and you deposit it. And that's, that, that, it, that's the picture. That's, that's what is it called, we're called to do here. Committing, depositing trust. And not just to anything or anyone. He says we're committing it to him who has the ability to keep our soul. And that should be our prayer as we suffer. When we're going through hard times, we should be praying that our soul would be kept. And we should do it, and we should be committing the keeping of our souls to Him, God, who is a faithful creator. And it, it's not so much... It, when He talks about creating here, I don't think He's so much talking about creating the world in six days in, in Genesis. I think He's talking about creating the things that are going on right now, currently. He is continuing to create situations in our lives that demonstrate his faithfulness and, of course, call us to that same level of faithfulness. Every bit of your trust will be rewarded by the faithful creator. Commit, commit the keeping of your soul to him and well-doing. And I, I uh, have a section here. probably don't have time to cover all of what I have here. It's about time to close. But he's, he says that one of the ways that we deposit that, the way we make that commitment is by continuing to do good. Doing the next right thing in the situation that we're in. And suffering, you know, you know how it is. Suffering makes us feel like what? It feels like making us quit. And so we stop doing the good things. We feel like quitting. We feel like giving up. And here he says that one of the ways that we commit the keeping of our souls to him is by well-doing or by continuing to do what's right. 
as compared to quitting. <clears throat> it's important for us to allow maturity, to allow development, to allow dependence of God to have its full impact on our lives. We should be sensitized by our suffering. <clears throat> as I close, I want to draw attention to two words in verse 16. And they're also in verse 14, or similar in verse 14. In verse 16, I did not talk about this, passage, this verse as we were going down through. He says, If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. That's the two words, glorify God. You know where I think that maybe Peter got this from? Peter, as we know, was one of Jesus' disciples. And in John chapter 9, there was a man that was born blind. He was blind from birth, and the apostles see him. And they're not, it's not, apparently not somebody that they know. They're not in this guy's life. And so they sort of look at it academically, and they ask a question, and they say, so this guy's blind. Uh, who sinned? Was it the man himself, or was it? his parents or someone that caused him to be born blind. And Jesus speaks right into that, and it's the question, the why question. He says, neither this man, uh, yeah, I'm putting it in my own words here, neither his sin nor his parents' sin caused this, but that the glory of God might be revealed in him. That's John chapter 9. <clears throat> The glory of God can be revealed in suffering. And I think it's something that should be in all of our lives, or a desire of all of our lives. <clears throat> I want to just um, say now that there tend to be three common responses to suffering. And um, I'm going to say this by way of illustration. So if you were, imagine yourself as being in a kitchen, and you have a pot of boiling hot water on the stove in front of you, and beside the stove you have three items, a carrot, an egg, and a handful of coffee beans. Well, first of all, you put the carrot in the boiling water, and it goes, a carrot goes in firm and hard. But when it gets out of the water, when it meets the water of adversity, the boiling hot water, it turns flimsy and soft and has no strength in and of itself. Next, you put in the egg. You put the egg into the hot water. And the egg, on the other hand, is very fragile and has a thin outer shell and a liquidy interior. But when you put the egg into the boiling hot water, it turns hard and rubbery. Last of all, you get the coffee beans and put those into the water. Put those into the boiling water. And guess what? The beans change the water. In fact, the water is no longer called wa water. It's now called coffee. The beans change the water. And it's the various circumstances. The various circumstances that cause the pain, you could say, the suffering in the coffee beans. The hot water. And the hotter the water, the more fragrant the coffee and the more flavorful the coffee. And I asked a question as I close here, several questions in fact. 
How do you handle adversity? Do you become limp and sort of useless? Or do you become hard and rubbery? Or do you allow God to use your life and the experiences and the suffering, the heat that comes into your life to change you and to change the situation around you? When the trials are at their greatest and the darkest, do you elevate to the next level? How do you respond to the suffering that God brings into your life? If you're able, I invite you to kneel in prayer. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>